Please stand for the reading of the word from John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail the King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out of the place of the skull, which is Aramaic, and is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side of him, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice cross prepared. Oh, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. He read it. It read, Jesus, this, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Later, knowing that everything now had been finished, and and so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked the sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Highland. It's good for you to be here. It's good for us to be here, uh, whether you're in this room or online. We're glad that you're here. My name is Shane Hughes. I'm one of the ministers here. And if this is your first time joining us, man, you've come to the right spot in your life to encounter God. Um, we believe that God works to bring stories together, to bring people together, that there are so often very few accidents in our lives. And this may be one of those moments. And so I want to encourage you to put some roots down here. Uh, just like Amy uh, Shesby was saying, find, find some ways to connect here at this church. And Advent that's coming next week, this is the end of this sermon series, is a great opportunity for you to do that. So commit as much as you're here and not traveling uh, over the holidays to be here at Highland and to experience um, as we celebrate the coming of Jesus and the coming of kingdom. We've been in this series called Radicalized the last month or so, and you've seen that, that bumper, the trailer before the sermon, and Matt Pinson, who's our creative arts director, uh, he was commenting, that's him in the video, uh, spray painting, and he said, you know, that's really hard to do. Uh, spray paint is actually a pretty technical art form, and, and it really shaped our perspective. Like, if you're driving along on North First or South First, and you see one of those murals on a train car passing by, and it's gorgeous, that takes a whole lot of talent. That's not easy. It takes work to find yourself in a countercultural place. And I think my intent this entire series was to articulate how that the virtues and the values of Christianity for those disciples who are following Jesus are going to cause you to be out of step with the culture around you because it is pretty unique. 
The way that our faith transforms us to action. The way that our hope requires us to engage in the suffering of the world. The way that we cannot live with some sort of dissected concept of truth and mercy, but we have to hold them together. Those ethical values shape our reality. And for a long time, I thought that makes us radicalized. But, but this week, I think there was a flip that happened in my mind. I think everything reversed. I don't think that those values make us radicalized. I think they make us sane. De-radicalized. Have you ever been watching the news or sitting in a conversation and you just hear the words and thoughts that are flying by or you're, you're on your social media and you're looking at the posts and you're reading the comments and you think to yourself, am I the only person in the world that's not crazy anymore? I felt that way. Uh, maybe what we're talking about is not what makes us radicalized. Maybe it's what makes the church same. Maybe all that this is doing is creating the space in the world where these sorts of values, this kind of place, can thrive. And I think the, the walls of that space are made out of, of love. And I know that sounds cheesy, but I want you to hang with me because I think there's something to it. My friend Candace has spent a lot of time in her um, academic career researching radicalization, and she helped me find some articles about what does it mean to be de-radicalized. And if you don't know, in the last 20, 25 years, that's been a big conversation across the world. Folks in Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia and Germany and in the U.S. are all trying to figure out how to help people who have gone so far off the map in terms of their thinking, how to bring them back without just putting them away into prison. And one of the lead scholars on this, his name is Daniel Kohler, and he, and he says he defines radicalization like this. And tell me if this is just like the world at large. The solitary problem for these individuals is, that, is always that there is a global conspiracy against their race or their religion or their people, and the solitary solution to such persecution is only violence, with the goal of placing themselves and their group in control of a revamped society. Now, in this quote, what he is talking about is radical Islam. But what I, the more and more I dug into the research, what I realized is that he's talking about a lot of folk. And in Germany, they're struggling with this problem of a generation that's rising up, that's adopting neo-Nazi ideas and, and standpoints, ideology. In the U.S., you can see this happening in the alt-right and other movements where it sounds like you're being so persecuted and everyone's against you that the only solution that you have is violence so that you can carve a place and a space where you can be safe. Kohler tells the story about a young man named Yusuf. Yusuf was a Somalian, is a Somalian refugee who came with his mother and his four small brothers and sisters to the U.S. and landed in Minnesota. And 
while he's there, uh, he stays in a house that has 14 other people in it because that's all they can afford. It was five years later until his father is also able to get a visa to come to the U.S., and they're able to move into their own house. Both of his parents work 60 to 70 hours a week, two jobs apiece, just so that they can pay rent and, and keep the food on the table. Yusuf, who is Muslim, finds his way into a few channels on YouTube that begin to change his point of view in the world. And even though the local iman was preaching against the kind of radicalization that was happening in other places in the world, Yusuf gets caught up into an idea and he begins to be talking to some conspiracy theorists and others that begin to shape his understanding of the world. And Yusuf tells the story that, like most, you know, 18-year-old boys, he's not very physically affectionate to his parents or to others around him. But on one day, when his father goes to drop him off from school, he gives his dad the biggest hug that he's given him in, in years. His dad's surprised, but the reason is because Yusuf knows he may never see him again. His father pulls away and turns down the street. Yusuf calls an Uber and goes to the airport. From Minneapolis, he wants to fly to New York, from New York to Europe, to Europe, to Yemen, where he's going to join ISIS, IS, and become a fighter. And he realizes, I'll probably never see my parents again. I probably won't come back. He flies to New York, and thankfully, uh, in New York, he's stopped by the FBI. Uh, someone has tipped them off about uh, Yusuf's ideas and, and, and direction, and they just want to ask him a few questions, and he can't tell them basic information. He can't tell them where he's going to stay when he gets to Yemen. He can't tell them the name of the hotel. He can't tell them what they're going to do there or how long he plans to stay, and so they tell him, frankly, you, we're not letting you get on this plane. It was the best thing that ever happened to him, but at the time, it felt like total disaster. Yusuf is taken back to Minneapolis. Three FBI agents are leaving his house as he is pulling up, as they've just told his parents what has happened. Yusuf will be charged with conspiracy to join a foreign government. It has a 25-year sentence. He's 18 years old. And recently in the U.S., most of the people that have been found guilty of this crime get extended maximum sentences. But the judge that Yusuf has can't shake the feeling and the thought that this is just some poor kid that got caught up in the wrong place and does not deserve what's going to happen. And so this judge begins to research on his own ways to de-radicalize others. And that's when Daniel Kohler comes into the conversation. The judge flies with his own money to Germany to speak to Daniel about how to help young men in particular find their way out of this problem. I want to read to you the definition again. The solitary problem for these individuals is always that there's a global conspiracy against their race or religion, and the solitary solution to such persecution is violence with the goal of placing themselves and their group in control of a revamped society. In Kohler's ideal scenario, this is how to get out of the problem. As a radicalized person is compelled to contemplate more and more run-of-the-mill issues, they lose the fervor that once made them eager to kill. However, reaching that point requires substantial resources. Kohler believes that each client needed at least four mentors plus an intervention coordinator 
that full de-radicalization can be achieved only in a matter of years, not months. And so Kohler speaking to the judge, the judge speaking to Yusuf, and then Kohler flies to the U.S. and speaks to Yusuf and begins the process and sets up the scaffolding that will allow Yusuf, Yusuf to walk out of the life that he was headed into. The judge gives him probation and says, if you keep your nose clean for the next 20 years, you don't have to go to prison. I want us to think about the definition of radicalization and what Jesus calls us to in the gospel. Because while I appreciate Kohler's work, and it's very important and necessary in, in the world we live in, I believe that the gospel actually provides the antidote to radicalization. Maybe what we're called to is not to be radicalized. Maybe what we're called to be is the only sane people in the room. Which takes us to our text today. It's the story of the crucifixion out of John. And if you know anything about the book of John, you know that the, the, the entire half, last half of the book is about the last week of Jesus' life. John wants to spend half of the time that he wants to tell you about Jesus, about the last seven days of Jesus' life. That's how important these hours are to John. And last week when we talked about the story of Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, what we notice is in John, the details are the key. You know, the, the woman has five husbands, and, and that's the key. That unlocks something. Maybe Jesus isn't talking about marriages that have failed. Maybe what Jesus is talking about is the plight of the Samaritans. And so what Jesus is offering is not a marriage proposal or some sort of grace, but actually talking about the reunification of Samaritans and Jews. Nicodemus comes at night to speak to Jesus. And the fact that he comes at night makes all the difference in the conversation. And so we pay attention to the details and the one thing you cannot help but notice in the story of Jesus' crucifixion in John is that Jesus is always in control. No one takes Jesus' life from him. Jesus only lays it down. Because the Gospel of Mark wants to show you the shame of the cross. How <coughs> excuse me, how undignified it is to die the death by execution by a, a government that is invading your place, how you have no power or control. You're hung up there naked to die. That's what Mark needs to show you. But what John wants you to know is that no one takes Jesus' life. In fact, in the conversation that precedes what, what we heard today, what was read today, that Pilate is trying to figure out what's going on. Now, Pilate is just the governor uh, of, of, the, of the region, and he's empowered by Rome and the empire. And, and, and like all politicians, Pilate is always stuck. He's always trapped. Because what Rome wants from Pilate is quiet events. They just want reports that say monthly, what's happened? Nothing, great. No incidents, no problems, excellent. That's what Rome wants to hear. What the Jews want is to use Pilate as a tool to kill Jesus because they need to solve a, a problem that's happening in the conversation of Judaism. Pilate is trapped. 
And what you notice in the story, remember the key to the John is the details, is that when Jesus is speaking to Pilate, Jesus remains planted and still. But Pilate, man, he just can't quit moving. He's walking in and he's walking out and he's asking Jesus questions and then he leaves again and he comes back and you are forced to ask the question, exactly who's on trial here? Frederick Beekner says, when Jesus says that he has come to bear witness to the truth, Pilate asks, what is truth? And contrary to the traditional view that this question is cynical, it's possible that Pilate asks it with a lump in his throat. Because instead of truth, Pilate only has expedience. His decision to throw Jesus to the wolves is expedient. Pilate views humankind as alone in the universe with nothing but its own courage and ingenuity to see it through. And that is enough to choke up anybody. Pilate asks, what is truth? And for years, they have been politicians and scientists and theologians and philosophers and poets and so forth to tell him. The sound they make is like the sound of crickets chirping. Jesus does not answer Pilate's question. He just stands there, stands and stands there. What's left unspoken, what is truth, is standing right in front of him. And in Pilate's expediency, Jesus is killed. And on the cross, in John, in contrast to the other gospels, Jesus doesn't pray. Jesus doesn't sing. Jesus doesn't ask the question where God is in the, in the midst of all of this suffering. He simply announces, it is finished and he gives up his life. I believe that love is the walls that protects the kind of community that God intends. And love entails suffering and sacrifice. In fact, love inherently necessitates pain. Which is kind of a downer for you to hear in a sermon on a Sunday morning. Right, but I'm right. You can't, you can't deny it, I'm right. This is true. This is true from when you're a child to when you're an adult, it does not matter. Um, you could have the most delicious dessert that you've ever imagined. It could be that fresh, warm chocolate chip cookie that you get from the bean, they are perfect. It is the platonic ideal of what dessert could be. You take it in your plate, you sit down to eat it, and then you take a bite, it's delicious. You take another bite, it is wonderful. You take a third bite, it is gone, and you burst into tears. This happens to three-year-olds, it happens to grown men. This happens every time. Because when you love something and it ends, that hurts. It is the risk that every human being engages in when they true to love, choose to love another individual that there is a chance that they might reject you or take advantage of you or cause you pain. There is a chance that they might leave you or reject you. All of those things are on the table when you take your heart and you give it to someone else. It's just the reality of the universe. And the reason that we place so much trust in some other being, the reason we place so much risk on the table is because it's worth it when they love you back. Magnify that experience times the billion lives that live in existence in God. God created the universe so that the universe might 
choose to love it back. We understand this on a fundamental level, that love entails suffering and sacrifice. In John, there is no mystery. In Mark, there's this secret. Jesus performs an amazing miracle, something that would astound the crowds. Everyone would know who he is. And he says to the person almost in a whispered voice, don't tell anybody. Like, is this just clever marketing? Like some sort of psychological trick? Don't tell everybody. So they actually go and tell everybody? Why is he trying to hide who he is? John doesn't care. John 1, verse 1, Jesus is God. The first line, in the beginning was the Word, and he was with God. The Word was God. Jesus in John is God. The God who witnesses and endures the suffering of the world. The God who chooses to act out of love, to send his only Son to suffer and die. Josh Graves, who's the pastor of the preacher at Otter Creek in Nashville, he has this great quote. He says, any definition of love that does not account for Jesus Christ crucified will be inadequate. The incarnation, the cross, and resurrection is the greatest example of radical love in the, in the history of the world. What Jesus does is the greatest example of radical love because God knows exactly what's going to happen. So what does it look like to mirror that kind of self-giving love in a self-absorbed world? I think one of the things that you can do is fight to keep the space that keeps us sane. By doing things like choosing to be happy and choosing to be joyful, and choosing to be kind. I no longer think that the world is going to be impressed by gigantic shows of Christian generosity. I think what's going to impress the people around you is the way that you love your neighbor as you love yourself. I'm becoming more and more convinced that's the only way to practice self-giving love in a self-absorbed culture. This looks like the civil rights movement. Remember, the civil rights movement began, its, its birth was in southern churches. As people together gathered to stand up for justice for others, to, to begin to advocate for those whom they love, to have the courage to go into streets to protest, to demonstrate, to say that this is not the way that God has created this world to be. And they suffered for it. It's a million little ways. It's like Mark and Allie Kaiser, who did our communion talk. Mark and Allie are our partners down in E2, and they work with CL, which is 
an organization that helps those who have been kicked by life to kind of get back on their feet, those that are coming out of prison or coming out of addiction or coming out of uh, isolation and loneliness. And it creates a space for them to learn who they're supposed to be and then equips them to go back and kind of re-enter into the world. And so it gives them places like the Cafella where they can practice being together with others again. And the Cafella is this, this, this beautiful place. But all of that began when in Allie and Mark's kitchen table. It began by them writing letters, inviting people to just, hey, come to our house. The homeless in their neighborhood, come to our house. And the homeless that became their friends, come to our house. And eventually somebody came into their house and ate with them. And they were treated with dignity and respect and genuine love. And they invited their friends. And, and that t- table becomes full of people. And they sat there and they talked, but mostly they listened And then they invited them, become a part of our E2 church. And what they heard back is, we would love to be a part of this community, but we don't have showers. And and we don't have the, it doesn't feel right for us to come into that church the the way we are. And so they went from their kitchen table to their bathroom and they opened up their bathroom so that uh, men and women could have showers before they come to church. And this is a moment that I'm not going to forget. This is a moment that will be a marker in the life of Highland. Allie and Mark were at our elders meeting on Wednesday night. And they were, they were talking about their experience and what it was like. And, and one of the elders asked the question, like, why do you do this? And, and the answer was that they couldn't hold anything back. They couldn't hold back their table in their kitchen. They couldn't hold back their bathroom. They didn't hold back their lives. They were willing to give everything to share. And I was convicted in that moment of all the things that I hold back. The temptation to abandon love for power is real and it's ongoing. That temptation is going to be for real for us as a community that we just don't have to give anymore. We don't have to try anymore. We don't have to put ourselves out there anymore because it hurts and sometimes there's a risk and sometimes what you leave on the table is gonna be rejected by the other and that's a difficult place to be. But in the end, what God teaches us through the life of Jesus Christ is that love makes it worth it. And so we don't abandon the value of love because it's changed us. It makes us who we are. It keeps us sane. But I think most importantly, it forms us into who we were always supposed to be. It forms you who you were created to be. A person who loves. Who has the courage to endure sacrifice and suffering for the sake of the one who gave us everything. Would you please stand for our benediction? Brothers and sisters, make no mistake. Jesus, who is God, who came to earth and gave up everything on our behalf, did it for the sake of love, did it for the sake to show us a new way and a new path, So may you have the courage this week to love fully every person you meet, to give everything you have to them. May the Spirit give you the courage to do what is right. Live sane and go in peace.